The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And it's been a busy week in technology as always. The... Uh, Helicopter has flown four times on Mars now. I thought you were talking about your drone there for a second, but yeah, okay. Well, I've been flying my drone. That inspired me to fly my drone, but I, but Jim, I can't go higher than 390 feet with my drone. I know. It's a, a limitation put on us by FAA, and I can't go above it. It's baked into the software. Uh, this, I'm going to talk about this week how Elon Musk's Neuralink has embedded a chip in a monkey's brain, and they can play video games. <laughs> On what his does brain? this mean for the future of the world? Oh, you mean he can play video? The monkey can? I thought you were playing video games on the monkey's brain. Never mind. Oh no, 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 no. The monkey is monkey is playing video games. Ah. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, UFO uh, videos that were released by the Pentagon after years and years of speculation about the presence of evidence of USO, UFOs, the Navy has finally released official footing of unidentified fly, flying objects seen by Navy pilots. And there's kind of an interesting video. I watched the video, and there's a lot of hype going on over that whole thing. Quite nicely, it's, uh, you know, coming along. Uh, this week, we're going to feature Daniel uh, Kaminsky. He's a, um, a guy who spent his entire life doing penetration testing of, uh, of computer systems, and he discovered many, many flaws in the core infrastructure of the Internet, and he became world famous for it. Uh, he died last week, but he was a real luminary when it comes to security. And, of course, it, was a, it is a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Uh, we got an email from uh, Robert Taylor, uh, dear uh, Doc and Jim. Now, this is actually not an email. He he posted this to the Tech Talk Facebook page. Ah. Dear Doc and Jim, I've got a website that's hosted on GoDaddy. When I make changes to the web page on the site and then publish them, sometimes they uh, the changes do not show up uh, immediately on my Brave or Edge browser. I've cleared the cache. And the change would show up. And then I made further changes, but these changes did not show up. I cleared the cache again. I cleared the cookies. I did everything I could do to try to clear everything out of my local computer. And they still did not show up. I thought maybe I should upgrade to Firefox uh, to see the changes. I cleared the cache there. I still can't see anything. I ran all sorts of uh, utilities to sort of check for malware on my computer. 
And it turns out if I waited a few hours, they finally, finally would show up on the, Brave, on the Brave and Edge browsers. But a few hours later, what in the world is going on here? Well, let me, let me explain caching. I mean, you understand caching mostly, but you don't have the full picture. I'll explain what caching does. Uh, browsers have temporary storage of internet files. So if you go to a website, say frequently, it will download those files to your, to your computer. And those, that storage of the temporary files is called a cache. In other words, it's keeping it stored locally. So when you go back to the website again, it loads very quickly because it doesn't go out to the internet to get it. It loads it right off your computer's memory. And so you get very, you know, the website turns on very quickly. Now, what happens, though, is that um, when you um, change the website and then you go back to that same website and you're taking the data from the computer's cache, you won't see the changes on the website. And that's what, uh, and that's what Robert Taylor was saying. So he rightly so cleared the cache. And you can go into your browser and you can clear the cache. You can also, instead of going through all that thing, you can also force the browser to load the uh, page directly from the website and not use the local cache. Now, that's called a hard refresh. Now, you can typically get a hard refresh that simply by holding down the shift key and then you click the uh, reload button. You know, there's that, little, there's that little circular arrow up there around the browser window. That's the reload button. Hold the shift key, click the reload button, and that will be a hard refresh. It will take it straight from the website, and then you don't have to clear the local cache. Now, there are also keyboard uh, way, keyboard uh, commands that will give you a hard refresh. Say with Chrome, Firefox, or Edge on Windows, you can simply hit Control-F5, and that gives you a hard refresh. Uh, now, sometimes that doesn't work, so you can try Shift-F5, and if that doesn't work, you can try Control-Shift-R. Those all three, and it depends on how your computer has been configured. Like on my computer, Control-F5 works, Shift-F5 works, but Control-Shift-R does not work. But try one of those three and you'll get, you will get it, uh, you know, you'll, you'll basically go straight to the website and pull it up. Now, however, you may notice that you may notice that uh, some ISPs maintain server-side cache. They, they maintain server-side cache. And the reason they do that, the reason they maintain server-side cache is that they're trying to give you a quick response to the website. And you can configure server-side cache typically if, if, if you're the... Uh, if you're running the website, you can go to the configuration panel and you can check to see whether there's server-side cache enabled. In particular, uh, WordPress is notorious to installing server-side cache with, with many of its plugins. So I think uh, in the case where you could not see the changes for a while, I think you were dealing with server-side cache that needed to be reset. So you can go to the configuration panel on your um, on your website go to the plugins on your or your WordPress control panel and I think you can refresh that uh, cache 
or you can simply disable that cache if you don't like to get it. But best of luck managing all of the cache on your website. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear uh, Doc, Jim, and the ethereal uh, Mr. Big Voice. Ooh, big it word. appears there is no honor among thieves. Here's another example of hackers taking advantage of other greedy or wannabe hackers with malware. Now, this malware poses as hacker tools and is posted on the web, on the, on the site for distribution of hacking tools, Telegram, but it actually steals digital coins. Now, researchers have named this malware Hack Boss. <laughs> I mean, that seems like a nice name, but they, they just gave it there. Now, what this appears, and it, and it appears when they looked at it, that whoever set up Hack Boss has already stolen about $500,000 in, uh, in cryptocurrency from, from other wannabe hackers. And um, so actually, how this thing works is uh, this particular uh, uh, piece of malware, if they download it, it's a, it's a zip file. And as soon as the zip file is launched, an interface comes up. And as soon as that interface comes up, it installs the malware on the victim's computer. Now, what it does is very, very clever how it operates. It actually does a substitution into the, uh, in, into the, um, um, into the temporary memory of your computer. You know, you, you, uh, whenever you're doing something, a crypto payment, you... Uh, you basically uh, will store, suppose somebody wants you to send a crypto payment. So you need to put the address of their crypto wallet into your, uh, into your, into your system in order to send them the money. So typically what's done is you copy the address of the uh, other person's crypto wallet and paste it into clipboard. And then, uh, and then from a clipboard, you can then... Uh, paste it into your system, and then you can uh, send the cryptocurrency. Actually, what happens is that the software just pulls the address of the, um, of the target wallet right out of the clipboard. Well, what this particular software does, whenever it sees a crypto address wallet in the clipboard, it pops in the address of the guy that wrote the malware. Now, typically, people don't look at all these codes. They don't really pay attention. And then they send the money. But instead of, instead of sending it to the intended target, they send it to the guy who wrote the malware software. So he's managed to collect around uh, half a million dollars doing this. And it's a, it's a fairly simple program, but it seems to be working and fooling all of those whacker honobies. So what, what, so what they say, you know, what comes around goes around if you're going to hack. We got an email from Susan in, from Susan Church. Good morning, Doc and Jim. I think you've I don't think you've featured Jim Kaminsky before in Profiles in IT. He's an internet security expert. They called the savior, the savior of the internet. And he died at age 42 on Friday. I think he'd be a great subject. Uh, thanks for the suggestion, Susan. We're gonna feature Kaminsky today. He had an exceptional life and made an exceptional contribution to internet security. We got an email from Donna. In Pittsburgh, dear Doc and Jim, do you know when Microsoft is planning to release Windows 11? I want to buy a laptop, and I don't want to buy it and then all of a sudden have, you know, Windows 10, the old version. Uh, as soon as I know when they're going to come out with Windows 11, 
uh, I'm going to buy a laptop that supports that. Uh, what should I do? Well, uh, uh, Donna, here's the thing. Uh, I think Windows 10 is here to stay because they Microsoft went to a new system. They don't actually have these major upgrades you know, every year. What they do, they just have a, a, what they call a, a rolling update, where every six months they just update Windows 10. It's always Windows 10. And they'll add features and they'll do bug, bug fixes and that sort of thing. Because uh, Microsoft has shifted their uh, financial model. Now they make money on cloud services instead of selling Windows, uh, Windows operating systems. And if they've got you in the Windows ecosystem, they can sell you lots of cloud services, and that's what they're doing. Sort of what, um, what Apple does with their operating system. You get it free, but then they hook you into all their cloud services. So, uh, and this is a good, by the way, this is really good for both Microsoft and the user because as soon as Windows 8.1 reaches the end of its life cycle, there will only be one version of Windows out there, Windows 10. So that means whenever there's an upgrade, they can simply write the upgrade for Windows 10 only and they don't have to make it backward compatible with all the previous versions. That means the code's gonna be a lot smaller and a lot cleaner and it's gonna be a lot more reliable. And uh, technically, it will give Microsoft more time to develop more features, and that's better for the consumer. We got an email from Kathy in Boulder. Dear Tech Talk, my mom's been wanting, uh, my son has been wanting a nice gaming computer, and I'm planning to buy him one for his 12th birthday. I've looked at gaming computers on Amazon, and every one I come up with runs Windows. I uh, even checked Best Buy. They only have Windows gaming computers. And my son's been playing around with Linux for a while, and he really likes it. That's why I'm trying to find a gaming PC that runs on Linux. Where are they, and why aren't there any out there? Can you can you recommend a good Linux gaming machine? Well, uh, the answer answer is really simple, Kathy. There are a lot more Windows PCs out there in the world than there are Linux computers. Game developers want to make money, so they write games for the biggest market share. And that would, of course, be Windows. That's also why there are more viruses on Windows, because malware makers go where the most machines are. There's also a secondary reason uh, why you see more games on PCs, on Windows machines. That's because Windows is better suited for gaming. It's got better support for gaming. It's got more powerful hardware. And it's set up for running resource-intensive games. So... Uh, you're not going to find a Linux machine out there for gaming. I suggest you just get him a Windows gaming machine. We got an email from David in Myrtle Beach. Dear Tech Talk, in early uh, 2018, I installed a Samsung 250 gigabyte solid state hard drive on my Dell laptop. Now, it's, um, you know, I've had it three years. It's worked great. It really sped, sped things up. I love it. But I recently read in a, an article about solid-state hard drives, and they said that over time, they can only be written so many times, and then they wear out. Now, I'm worried. My drive's three years old. Uh, I've got a lot of personal files on it that I don't want to lose. My question is, do you think the drive is likely to fail at some time in the near future? Do you think I ought to go ahead and buy a new one? David in Myrtle Beach, uh, South Carolina. Well, uh, I'm glad you uh, upgraded your laptop to a fast solid-state hard drive. That uh, you've discovered, and you did discover that you got a drastic speed up in your computer. Now, the fact that you're worried about losing critical files on your computer tells me something. Tells me something very significant about you. It doesn't appear that you are doing backups. 
And that's a huge mistake. Just like hard drives, a solitary drive can fail anytime. I mean, I, I heard of one that failed after only two weeks. I mean, it's rare, but they can fail anytime. That's why I strongly recommend that you start creating regular backups of your data right now. Now, since you're using a Windows machine, it's very easy to do a system image backup. Just get a low-cost uh, USB external hard drive and do a system image on that. And then uh, if your solid-state hard drive ever fails, you can just restore the entire system image to the new solid-state hard drive and you won't miss a beat. So every week you can just do a system image on your uh, on that external hard drive or every night, depending on how often you want to do it. And, and you'll, be, uh, you'll be good to get Then that way, when and if your solid-state hard drive ever fails, you won't lose anything. Just buy a new one and restore the image to the new solid-state hard drive, and you are ready to rock and roll. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday at 9 on Federal News Network. It's 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, southwest of Washington, 107.7 uh, uh, FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM HD2. Follow us on Twitter at WFED Tech Talk and learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature David Kaminsky. David Kaminsky is a computer security researcher and co-founder of White Ops, a computer security company. He's best known for discovering a major security flaw in the domain name system, the DNS system, which is the core uh, plumbing of the Internet. And I'll explain why that's so important. Kaminsky was born in San Francisco, February 7th, 1979. His father bought him a Radio Shack computer at age four. Kaminsky taught himself to code by age five. 
He was sort of a coding prodigy. At age 11, his mom received a call from a government security administrator who told them that someone at their address had penetrated classified computers on this particular secure look at this particular secure location run by the military. And he said, if it doesn't stop, we're going to cut off your internet now. Wow. And he started, uh, you know, really giving a hard time. And the mother said, let me tell you, sir, if you cut off our internet, I'm going to get a full page ad in the San Francisco Chronicle. And I'm going to explain how the military security is so bad that they're Highly classified computers were hacked by an 11-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> or you could just give him a three-day timeout on the Internet. I'd be good to go with that. So he got a three-day timeout on the Internet. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his mother was ferocious in defending her son. Now, he, uh, he attended St. Ignatius High School, and then he went on to uh, attend Santa Clara University. Now, after graduating, he worked in penetration testing for a number of firms, including Cisco, Avaya, IOActive, that was really all penetration testing, before he founded his own penetration firm, uh, White Ops. Now, what penetration testing firms do, there will be a company that says, look, we want to find out how secure our systems are. We would like you to try to hack into our systems and see whether you could get a data that we want protect. And so they hire the best penetration testers to try to find the uh, vulnerabilities in their system. So uh, he, that's what he did. He was very good at it because he could penetrate systems quite, quite well. Now, in 2008, Kaminsky discovered a fundamental flaw in the domain name system that allowed hackers to easily perform what they call cache poisoning attacks on the name servers. Now, they found a way where he found a way where a thief or a spy could manipulate DNS traffic so that the person typing uh, the website, say, person typing in, trying to go to the website for a bank, would instead of getting back the actual bank's website, they would be redirected to an imposter website that looked like the bank's website. And then when they log into the imposter website, the crooks have the username and password for that account. So if you control the DNS traffic, you can control web traffic everywhere. So the domain name servers, like if you type in stratford.edu, that's an English name that people understand. They send stratford.edu to a domain name server, and it locates the binary address of the Stratford University uh, uh, you know, servers. And, you know, For IPv4, that would be 32 bits long and it would be of zeros and ones. If we're running the IPv6, it's 120, 128 bits long of zeros and ones. Well, you can see people don't want to remember a string of zeros and ones. They'd rather just remember stratford.edu. So it's basically a lookup table. It's like, an, it's, it's like a phone directory for the internet. And so instead of getting back a string of zeros and ones for Stratford University, if this hack was accomplished, you would get zeros and ones for another website that looked like a Stratford website, and they could they could trick you to giving all kinds of passwords and everything else. This was a major flaw in the internet infrastructure that would cause a complete meltdown. In order to fix it, they had to 
update the software on every DNS server in the world. I mean, this was a huge job. And uh, it, this was a major discovery. So what he did, the first, Comincy first called Paul Vixie. He was the longtime steward of the Internet's domain name service. Now, Vixie, when he listened to the hack that Kaminsky had discovered, he panicked. He, he started seeing, he says, my, this is bad. If the bad guys get a hold of this, there's going to be a meltdown. So he said, we've got to fix this, but we can't let people know that, the, um, that, that, that this vulnerability is out there. Uh, so they came up with a plan. The next thing, Kaminsky notified Department of Homeland Security, and then he notified executives of both Cisco and Microsoft, who he knew very well. Now, Kaminsky worked with the DNS vendors, as well as with uh, Paul Vixie, to organize a secret meeting that was hosted by Microsoft. They couldn't even tell people what it was about because they didn't want it to leak. They said, look, we've got a very important meeting. We want you to come to Microsoft. When you get to the meeting, we'll tell you what it's about. So people showed up at this meeting, all these high-level DNS experts showed up at Microsoft for the meeting, and they said, this was what we discovered. And the guys in that room had to write a patch before they left. And they worked on a patch, and they ended up finding a patch that mostly patched it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, may, it would be very, very difficult to hack the DNS system after the patch. And then they rolled that patch out globally. Then Kaminsky presented his hack at the Black Hat conference uh, shortly thereafter. And this was a major presentation. But by the time he presented the hack, it had already been patched. Now, his mom, uh, you know, really doesn't, didn't like the way that, that Daniel Kaminsky dressed. You know, his regular outfit, his regular outfit was a T-shirt, shorts, and flip-flops. And she said, Daniel, Daniel, you cannot go to this uh, black hat conference, make this major presentation. You've got to dress up for it. So she bought him a suit and made him wear it. And she says, now, Daniel, you must wear shoes with toes in them. <laughs> okay, that meant no flip-flops. So you know what Daniel did? Cut the, he bought cut a the pair toes. of roller skates. Ah. And he wore a suit with roller skates, and he roller skated out onto the, uh, out onto the stage. <laughs> well, the shoes did have toes in them. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and then, they also had wheels uh, on them. So he became world famous at finding the sack. He was, uh, he was uh, noted. And people, people said, well, you could have made a lot of money. You knew this hack. You could have done redirection. You could have sold this to malware people. He said, look, I'm about fixing the Internet. I'm only going to do what's right. He was never motivated by money. He was motivated. He was a true hacker who, who wanted to make the Internet better. Now, he also discovered that various ISPs had been finding very clever ways to deliver ads. What they would do, they would intercept uh, you know, messages coming back from the DNS system, and they would substitute the messages with ads. So you'd, you'd get delivered an ad. And, and he says, man, this is another security problem because it would be possible for people to attack the ad servers and then all of a sudden you're redirected to another website again. So he figured out that this was a huge security flaw that these Internet service providers had stepped into and he needed to get it fixed. So he worked with the ad-serving companies and he helped them eliminate 
cross-site uh, cross, uh, uh, scripting, cross scripting vulnerability, which then would solve the problem. So he worked in the background on that. Uh, you know, he's doing all of this for not really making money on it. His, he made money by doing penetration testing, but all these other things, he just basically did pro bono, trying to make the internet a better place. In March of uh, 27 of 2009, he discovered that the configure-infected hosts, that was a major, uh, you know, a major malware that had just spread out over the internet. He discovered that it had a unique signature that you could de detect remotely. So he basically uh, was able to scan the internet and locate all the hosts that had been uh, infected so they could be notified. And uh, they upgraded uh, uh, network scanning tools like Nmap and Newt and Nessus uh, in order to do that automatically. So this would help them locate and eradicate this particular malware, which is on the internet. In addition, he found numerous flaws in secure socket layer. Now, you know, secure socket layer is when you go to an internet and you set up an encrypted path between you and the internet. It's called SSL. You get the little lock up there by the, uh, by the browser uh, window. And, uh, and, it, it, and it ensures that nobody can, can uh, see your credit card when you send it to the, to the vendor because it's all, all encrypted. So it was really meant, uh, meant for security. And he, um, he found a number, uh, number of flaws in, in secure socket layer. I mean, he found flaws in the, the hash functions, the MD2 hash functions. That's where they encrypt passwords and save them as a, what they call a hash. He found, uh, he found um, uh, mistakes in the root certificates uh, that, uh, that were being served up by VeriSign and uh, errors in the certificate parsers that were in a number of web browsers. So that means that a hacker could actually request a certificate from a website that they do not control. And that sort of underpins the, the, uh, the, the security functions of the internet. With It underpins uh, the, the uh, dependability of secure socket layer. So he was constantly looking for flaws in the security elements of the internet. This was just his project. And it was just, he was like a hacker trying to make the internet better. Now, in 20, uh, 2010, Kaminsky released Interpolik. Now, this is a beta framework for addressing injection attacks such as SQL injection and cross-site cross scripting. This was in a way that was comfortable for developers. See, one of the biggest ways that they hack a, a website is, is secure socket uh, SQL injection, where suppose you have to fill out a form and in in the, in you're filling out a form, say, first name. And, uh, and, they, and, they, and they leave 20 spaces for you to fill out your, your name, but they don't truncate it to 20 spaces. So uh, in fact, they don't truncate it at all. So a hacker can go in there and they can put in a line of code that might go, um, you know, might go 200 uh, characters and they put it in that 20 space area. But since it's not truncated, that additional space is overwritten in another part of memory. And then code is actually executed in another part of memory. And they can actually, using this SQL injection, they can, they, they can hack, hack, a, hack a computer and they, they, can get, uh, they can get control of the computer. And so he just set up a framework for developers so they could write code that was secure at the outset. Um, in 20, I mean, he also worked on a number of other projects just to help people. There were a lot of his friends that had medical issues, and so he would write, pro he would just work on code to help friends and family. Like he developed uh, an app to help colorblind people. 
He developed an app that, that made hearing aid technology better. He developed a telemedicine tool. He developed a series of telemedicine tools to help deliver AIDS education to refugees. Now, in 2016, Kaminsky said the internet was never designed to be secure. The internet was designed to move pictures of cats around. <laughs> we didn't <laughs> think we'd be moving millions of dollars uh, through bank accounts in, the, in this. And he says, well, what are we going to do? He says, well, some of us have just got to go out there and fix it. And that was his mission in life. And that wasn't a paid mission. That was just a mission. He wanted to make the internet better. So he tried to hack the internet to make it better. Kaminsky died April 23rd, 2021, of diabetic ketosis at his home in San Francisco. He'd been hospitalized with this medical condition for years. After his death, he got tributes from everywhere around the world. The Electronic Foundation, the Electronic Frontier Foundation called him a friend of freedom in the embodiment of the true hacker spirit. Jeff Moss said that uh, Kaminsky should be in the Internet Hall of Fame. So there is a real luminary, a selfless guy who just wanted to make the Internet better. Everything you wanted to know about Daniel Kaminsky. Excellent. And, Doc, while we go to break, I would uh, direct your attention to your phone regarding the pop quiz, if you could uh, do that for me. while. Yes, we, thank you very much. While we prepare for the pop quiz coming up here on Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, 107.7 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County at 104.5 FM. Learn about uh, how you can go to Stratford University and all the programs they have there by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Russ, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. 
Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I just love this audience feedback. I know. Makes me feel so good. <laughs> and you know, this is simply not a radio show. This no. is a classroom of the airways. Yes. And so we have to assess whether the audience has been learning and they give it with a pop quiz. So maybe when they know about that, they won't be cheering so loudly. Yeah. Now, what we're going to do, if you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you get two tickets to fine dining at one of uh, Stratford's dining rooms when they reopen. I think they're going to re be reopening in the fall is what it's looking like. Pretty excited about that. And uh, you'll also get an A-plus for today's show. Earlier in the show, I talked about Daniel Kaminsky. He's a computer security researcher that was always, uh, he sort of hacked the Internet to discover Internet security vulnerabilities, and then he would help fix them. He was, uh, he, he, and he was all, he just did a huge amount of work. He's just a natural born hacker. But here's the question. How old was he when he hacked into government secure computers just to play around? And he did if get you know the answer Whoops, he jumped the gun. Are you finished? Yep. Okay. If you know the answer to today's question, pick up your phone, give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, 877-936-9333. If you're still waiting in line for your Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccination east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're penetration testing in Canada, call us on the wild card line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's sanitized hourly using Radio Shack static-free computer screen wipes. 877-9-3639-333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Church. Seems Mr. Big Voice's mind is in the gutter this morning. I think so. We've got we've to gotta keep a track on him, Jim. Yeah. You know, we don't know what he's doing on those breaks. No, we don't. Okay, let's talk about this microchip that Elon Musk's company Neuralink embedded into a monkey brain. Now, Elon <laughs> Musk, Neuralink, just... they released a three-minute video on April 8th, which revealed a nine-year-old McKay a monkey playing video games via two of the company's implantable brain chips. Now, what the company did, it actually embeds a chip with around 2,000 electrodes, and they implant it in regions of the uh, monkey's motor cortex that coordinate hand and arm movement. Now, using this data... They calibrate the decoder by mathematically modeling the relationship between the pattern of neural activity and the different joystick moments. So what they do, they train the monkey to move the joystick. And so he was playing, the with, playing with the joystick, trying to learn how to play the video game. And they were able, when he would move the joystick to the left, they would look at the neural activation patterns that the chip picked up. And then they realized that they could predict that he was thinking about moving the stick to the left, and they would do it. Move it to the right, they get another pattern. So after they trained uh, the computers on the actual output from the monkey brain, the monkey didn't have to move the, um, the, uh, the joystick at all. He could just think about moving the joystick to the left, and the cursor would go to the left. He would think about moving and would go to the right. So he was able to play the game, uh, without any physical intervention, just looking at the screen playing the game. So they released a video of a, of a monkey playing a game with using these implanted chips. This, this is what Elon Musk wants to do to humans, but they're starting out with monkeys. 
not going into my brain. I'm sorry. I don't think I really want a chip embedded in my brain. I think that's just a little bit dangerous. I like a chip but embedded in my brain. it's interesting to see this, what the research is coming up with. I like a chip in, de- in, uh, 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 in my dip bowl is where I like my chips. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. Yep. That's, that's where you want chips. Doc, so that's for sure. We do not have... A winner yet? You stumped everybody. So Why don't you ask Daniel the question again? Daniel Kaminsky, of course, was a an internet hacker uh, who was working on internet security. But he started hacking at a very young age, and at one particular age, he hacked into a bunch of classified uh, DoD military computers and and got his hand slapped for it. What age did he actually do that hacking? All right. If you know the answer to that, you need to give us a call. And the number to give us a call at is. Wait a minute. Where did he go? See, he ran, he ran out the smoke. 877-936-9333. And in English, that's 877-936-9333. Doc, let's take a short break. We'll be back with more Tech Talk in just a minute on Federal News Network. Heard on 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, Southwest DC on 1077 FM HD2. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. Mm, sounds ominous. It does sound very ominous. You know, down in the bunker this week, I started thinking about hacking. Daniel Kaminsky was a hacker. And, uh, and you, you think about a hacking mindset, and he was actually trying to make the internet a better place. Hackers, hackers actually ought, were, have, uh, in the beginning, were viewed in a positive light because they were trying to improve the system. And uh, so I thought I would sort of look at what does the hacking mindset actually mean? And it's not really a skill set, it's a mindset. Now, originally, the word hacking uh, had nothing to do with computer programming. In fact, hacks were normally uh, used uh, to describe pranks then th- that were performed by MIT students. Now, their pranks were projects or products that would complete that would be completed to some end. 
And they would afford participants some enjoyment or the mere fact of participating in it. And there could be all kinds of pranks, but the pranks were not nasty pranks. They were just fun pranks to do, challenging pranks, and those were hacks. Now, hacking entails some form of excellence. You've got to be good at something. You have to explore the limits of what is possible, thereby doing something that's exciting and meaningful. Activities of playful cleverness are all said to have hack value. So like when he hacked the uh, government computers, he just wanted to see if he could do it. He didn't actually do anything malicious. He was just kind of poking around and having fun. Silicon Valley is built on a culture of hacking. A recent Harvard Business Review blog post describes Silicon Valley as having a culture that believes things are hackable, that the way we've designed various systems are not preordained and they're not immutable. They can be changed, that we can tinker with them, we can redesign them, we can play with them. It went on to say that participants in Silicon Valley countries don't ask for permission of what they do. They're less interested in the technologies per se than in playing with established ways of doing things and trying to break up conventional way of thinking to create something new, to learn, to have fun. And that mindset drives Silicon Valley. So they have a mindset of hacking, and that translates to clever, ethical, enjoyable, excellence-seeking behavior in their everyday life. Now, so now the key to this behavior is that it is deliberate. It doesn't happen by accident. If you're not acting deliberately in this way, then you've got to change the way of your thinking and, and, uh, and make it part of your M.O., so, like, uh, Daniel uh, believed that the Internet was a good thing, but it was not secure. And so he, life mission was to discover vulnerabilities through clever hacks of the Internet and then fix them, tell the right people about them. But the fact is, if you want to innovate in your country, if, uh, com company, if you want to change things, if you want to change the status quo, you've got to hack the present to make a better future. So you need a hacking mindset. So there are several principles of a hacking mindset. Number one, accept the challenge. No matter how hard it is, say, okay, let's take a shot at it. Number two, blow away the box of your thinking. Look for unexpected ways to make things better. You know, in other words, think outside of the box, as they say. Bring in your friends who have different perspectives. Let them all look at this problem, and together, with different perspectives, you're going to come up with some really great ideas to hack whatever you want to hack, to improve whatever you want to improve. Now, this is also part of the hacking culture. When you discover a hack, give it away. Information and knowledge should be shared openly. If you go to Silicon Valley, all the things that young entrepreneurs discover as they're building their companies, they share with others. It's a culture of giving. It's a culture of sharing. And collectively, they achieve a lot. And finally, pay it forward. Teach the next generation of hackers to think like a hacker. So this hacker mindset just, just doesn't apply only to Internet security. It applies to anything. It applies to life. If you want to get out of the status quo and make something significantly different going forward, you've got to hack what exists to create something new. 
So if you can follow these five basic principles, you can hack your life. You can hack your company. You can hack your future. There you go. All right, Doc, we all know what that sound means. That means yeah. there's somebody on the phone who would like to play the contest. Let's go to line one. This is Thomas calling us from Bowie, Maryland. Thomas, good morning. How are you, sir? Pretty good. Good. Doc, go ahead and ask a question, please. Yes, early in the show, I talked about Daniel Kaminsky, of course, is the, uh, the hacker who tried to make the Internet more secure. At what age did he hack those government computers and get his hands slapped? He was 11 years old. Excellent. Correct. Good job, Thomas. Thanks for listening today. Thanks for checking in, and thanks for playing the pop quiz. And we will get that prize out to you ASAP. Doc, based on the time, let's just keep it right here and uh, continue we'll on with more technology. We'll just keep going. Uh, yes. When do you have those UFO uh, um, sound clips ready to go? Oh, the UFO sound clips. Gotcha. I am uh, okay, ready to go Okay, let's do here. something else right now. No, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. You got them? Got it right here. Okay. The Pentagon released UFO videos. They released three Navy videos that have driven speculation about unidentified flying objects, saying it's meant to clear up any misconceptions about whether the footage was actually real or complete. And they said it's real. The videos captured by naval aviators show objects hurling through the sky, one rotating against the wind, and pilots can be heard expressing confusion and awe. They're shaped, the ones I saw were shaped like little pyramids and they could go up, down, and all around. The Pentagon's release was cheered by extraterrestrial life advocates, although some experts caution there may be an earthly explanation, except we just don't know what it is. Ah. Navy pilots spoke about objects that seem to defy the laws of physics. Uh, there's a five-year Pentagon program that claims metal alloys have been recovered from unidentified phenomena, and they don't know where those metals came from. Astrophysicists say there are many potential explanations for what appears in Navy videos, atmospheric effects, reflections, bugs in the code of imaging and display systems, etc. But the fact is, it has really lit up the world and the believers in UFOs. Now, Mars has, uh, on Mars, we've had a lot of activity, Jim. Mm -hmm. They yeah. made their fourth flight. Now, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, of course, they have a helicopter up there on the red planet. And the, uh, and the helicopter has been making tentative flights. It's, uh, you know, the, the rover's name, Perseverance. And the, and, the, um, the, uh, and the helicopter's name is Ingenuity. And so... Uh, it's difficult to fly a helicopter on Mars because a the uh, the biggest thing is it's a very thin atmosphere, mm -hmm. and so this, the the blades have to spin really fast in order to get lift. It took them a lot of research to figure out how to do that. So they've actually done multiple flights, and they on their fourth flight they actually flew out about a hundred feet from uh, Perseverance, and they've got pictures of it flying out. Now they're getting ready to, you know, they and they explored kind of a rocky outcropping about 100 feet away from Perseverance. So they're extremely excited about this. The plans were originally going to leave the helicopter uh, after they had completed one month of testing. They're just going to leave it there and just drive off. But now the helicopter's performing so well, they're just going to fly the helicopter right along per Perseverance as it goes. Wow. So they'll fly the helicopter out ahead, look or scud out some things, and uh, 
and then uh, and then and they'll just sort of tag along with perseverance. They don't know how long the helicopter will last. One of the biggest problems are it gets very cold at night, mm -hmm. and uh, so they have heaters on board, and they have a solar panel on the top of the helicopter that charges the batteries, and so it stays warm at night using heaters that are that are you know that are maintained by the batteries, and then it's got enough power to fly in the day. What they don't know is how long they can have those heaters function. They were only meant to function for about a month. And they think that's going to be the limiting factor. The, the heaters will stop working and then, then, the, then the, the, the helicopter will die. But this has been a tremendous success. And we can look for future flights to Mars with more helicopters, bigger helicopters. And chances are we'll have helicopters that actually men can fly. And now that they have the basic principles and they know that what they had modeled on Earth was is actually working on Mars. I, I wasn't aware of how small this thing is. It only weighs like four pounds, right? That's very tiny. It was basically just a proof of principle. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it's got it's got two cameras, a color camera, a black and white camera. It was a proof of principle. They didn't because on Earth they they they, they actually couldn't test it. I mean they, they, they put it in a chamber and they pulled the vacuum and they could and the helicopter could like fly around the vacuum chamber, which was only about, you know, you know, eight feet in diameter, they couldn't really test flights. I mean, it was just, I mean, they're in a vacuum chamber. Mm -hmm. So they really didn't, so they modeled the flight. They knew that they could lift off, but they didn't know how stable it would be actually. And it turned out that the modeling that they did on Earth is exactly being duplicated in Mars. So it, everything's been validated. So now they can scale the system up. The next one will be much bigger. And, and they'll actually, then the, Helicopter will fly ahead of the of the rover, looking for interesting areas. They can look the helicopter can look over the horizon to see what's over there, and then it will make the rover search much much more efficient. This is really an exciting development uh, in uh, in space exploration. By the way, they they put a small piece of the Wright brothers' plane in there because heard, they said yeah. the first flight on Mars is like the Wright brothers' first powered flight on the Earth. The, so. Um I wonder what would happen because you, the, the the rotors of this thing have to rotate at a um, ridiculously fast uh, rate. I wonder if you try to do that on Earth, what would happen in in just regular conditions? The thing just well, they fall uh, apart. yeah they, they, the well, if you do it in 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 regular air, uh, it would take a lot of power because the you know the they, the blades are turning about five times faster than than they uh, than they than helicopter blades turn on Earth, mm -hmm. and they've got two counter rotating blades so they to provide stability. So the the air is one tenth the uh, the, uh, the the thickness of the air on Earth, but also the gravity is much less because Mars is a smaller planet. So the reduced gravity combined with the thin air meant they only had to spin them five times faster, which is still pretty fast. And they had to make them. They had to taper the um, taper the blades so they would uh, wouldn't break apart because of centrifugal force. Let's talk about the first uh, the first pagers. We're going to walk back on memory lane. Yeah, it was back in the early 1950s in New York City. There was a company called Reeves Sound Company in Long Island, and it wanted to construct a remote notification system for doctors. Because they had a problem. Doctors leave the hospital. They're on call. How, how, do, how can they reach them? So the system was a huge success, but it's a little more complicated than the modern, modern page. Remember, this is 1950. So they actually had a radio station called Tele Answer Phone, 
It was operated by teleanswer phone, and each doctor would have a number assigned to him. And, uh, and that number would be recorded on a little piece of movie film uh, so that his name would be there, a little, a little piece of movie film would, would, there, would have his number encoded on it. And so the, uh, the hospital would call the, the company, and they'd say, look, we need to call uh, Dr. Smith. So they'd pull Dr. Smith's little piece of film out there with his n number on it, and they would put it in the system, it would scan, and then the radio station uh, would transmit that number. And they would transmit the number, and, they, and you could hear it in a radius of 25 miles, and they would transmit a series of doctors' numbers who were being called every hour on the hour. So a doctor who was on call at 9 o'clock at night would listen to that radio station for his number. And if the number would come through, he'd say, okay, looks like they want to call me. Then he would call the hospital to find out what they want. It's kind of a, a complicated system, but it did work. It was very popular. And uh, it cost back in 1950 $12 a month. Now, in today's <laughs> dollars, that would be $127 wow. a month. Wow. <laughs> and that is quite, uh, quite, the, um, quite the, uh, the expense. But I can tell you, Jim, uh, you know, uh, this week I've just been having a lot of fun with my drone. I'll bet you have. I've been I've been flying it around, and what I what I discovered was uh, they, they've got the what they call master shots, so it's it's extremely stable. the the computer the, the computer I mean I flew it out in heavy winds and it would just stay there really rock were you, solid. You were up yesterday. I I, I took it up last night. Yeah, I flew mm. it last night. Wow. You know they 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 uh, uh, they said don't go outside. Did, I, I think, but I thought <laughs> well I need to test the drone. <laughs> yeah, you're such a trendsetter. I know. I I, I had to trust rule you know, breaker. I, I, yeah, and so and so I, and so it, it it holds its location really well, and it takes it's got a 20 megapixel camera, so it uh, it takes fantastic photographs, and and it downloads uh, now 5.6 megabit uh, software. But I've been doing master shots, Jim, that actually actually will do videos and they'll circle the subject and, and they'll create a video, a programmed video that just looks super professional and I love it. That's great. Listen, we uh, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. Check out all of our programs at the website, www.stratford.edu and tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.